Hi, this is Cliff Kriego for the picture-poems.com website in the circle in the square. Today's another Poems to Live By chapter. This is a new series I've been working on this spring and summer. But it's something I've actually been doing in my own literary, musical, poetry practice for some time and is really central to how I think about uh, poetry in general. So where to begin? Well, when we talk about poetry these days, Perhaps you've noticed there's almost a kind of hesitancy or fear. Poetry, ooh, that's that hard-to-understand stuff. It's kind of like, oh, you do differential equations, I see. But it's kind of off-putting. And when we talk about that, poets, literary people, or uh, just anybody, uh, that's always somehow silently in the background. Now the first thing with poems to live by is to get rid of that. So we're being very simple that poetry is not a book. Poetry is not something to be read. In the analogy I always use is the obvious one in music that there is a way of doing music especially prominent in Western classical music of reading music in what you call a score and uh, nowadays you have to be kind of careful because there is a kind of classical music illiteracy rampant, especially in North America. And now it's taking over in Europe too. That It used to be that um, music was a central part of just uh, everyday uh, education. But uh, nowadays uh, I'm sitting here in the wilderness with downtime. It's almost noon and it's extremely hot, so I'm in a beautiful spot and it's almost like a climbing bivouac in Yosemite, sitting in a very small granite ledge, seeking the shade of some white bark pines. But it's very quiet. And I happen to be working on a poem as part of my practice a part of yoga practice, really, or Alexander Technique. And uh, as chance would have it, it's, uh, it's another Rilke piece that I'm always coming back to and forgetting. Like I always say, you only know a poem by heart if you've forgotten it a hundred times. Well, we've passed a uh, hundred with this little occasional masterpiece of music to music. It's an ode to music. Written, don't quote me on this, probably around 1924 as an occasional piece, although we could cast some doubt on that. 
that uh, Ryoga was, of course, always projecting the poet's uh, image and very, very good at it. Uh, so it might have been composed a little bit before him, but it was written down in a guest book. That's the legend. And I think that's an actual fact. But I make no claim to be a Ryoka scholar. I just happen to love the poetry. And uh, keep coming back to this poem because it's not only a masterpiece. We'll come back to that. What's a masterpiece? But it's very uh, powerful and it's very purifying because uh, in my own personal work, to have a sense of what now is the damn essence of performance and music. Let's, let's get this clear, not defined. It's not, there's nothing intellectual about it, although intelligence certainly plays a role in the sense of creativity. Well, okay, score, that can be written down like um, in my own career in music, I'm a well-known expert for doing, in the past, extremely complex, difficult to read notational uh, music. I don't regret doing it, but I totally question it now. And, uh, you know, you work at it and get very good at it and then uh, teach other people to do it. And you can just like, you can project that image. And that's done tremendous harm to the essence of music. So poems to live by. They're poems we learn by heart. If you don't have someone teaching you the poem, like the great American poet Robert Bly says, there's nothing better, I'm not quoting, but there's nothing better to learn a poem than love, and that's true. If someone really loves a poem and learns it by heart and teaches that to a child, shares it with a child, they learn it instantly because there's a depth of what I think of as it's a real, actual, pulsing, living energy. It's not just a concept. You have to actually contact that energy of the love resonance that becomes one with the child's being or the child in the grown-up sense of someone who doesn't know, for example, this Rainer Maria Rilke masterpiece to music, written in Mousseau towards the end of his days when he was working on the great elegies and um, at the same time, almost as a second birthing, the equally great, but very different in character and tone and theme, Sonetin on Orpheus, the sonnets to Orpheus. Well, so this is a little occasional piece. Imagine finding this in your guest book to music. Let's get started with the poem. I wanted to do it backwards. So there's no score, we're just listening. Music, you stranger. So we're speaking directly somehow to the muse. 
the spirit of music. Forget about Ryoka, just with the movement. Music, you stranger. Passion, which has outgrown us. Our innermost being transcending, driven out of us. I'm just doing it phrase by phrase. We'll finish with the whole thing as it really goes. Passion, which has outgrown us. Our innermost being transcending, driven out of us. So this is expression on a completely different spiritual level. This is somehow our innermost thoughts and beings and resonances and loves and hates and everything is in there. And somehow there's something magical in music that makes that manifest. Not only for the one singing and dancing and performing it, but for all those beings around them. And we're thinking of Orpheus, right? What a marvelous image, singing to the birds, to the trees, to the deer. Not St. Francis making the mistake of lecturing to the birds. <laughs> We're sharing something and they sense it. Isn't that wonderful? See, I know this poem backwards and forwards. That's why I'm doing it backwards. It's always a good test to do a poem backwards because then you really know it. And it's just like, um, that's my uh, background as a performer, I guess. So. Poetry has nothing to do with books, so we're throwing the books out. Although you can write it down just like uh, I write my music down. You can even write it in computer programs, code or whatever. But that is not the music. That's the key point. So I'm looking, sitting on this little Yosemite-style climbing shelf. And the sun's starting to hit us, so I'm not going to go too long. And I have my library up here. I'm out doing field work, and there isn't a soul in sight. It's the beginning of August. It's hot as hell, way too hot. And the culture of denial taking refuge up here to revitalize my work and whatnot. And uh, so I'm here at the Grand Hotel. There's a room for everything and everybody up here. It's totally granite, white bark habitat, way, way high. I can describe it. I'm looking out on the aquamarine. That's a very beautiful expression because we could be in the Caribbean. I've never been there. We could be surfing coral. I'm looking at this alpine lake, and that is its color. It's absolutely magnificent. There's not a breath of air, wind. So I can see to the very depths of the bottom. The water is so pure and clear. But to actually know this place, you have to come here, right? And that's poetry. You have to actually bring it to life in performance. Otherwise, it's nothing. In fact, it's worse than nothing. So 
like I say, in a lot of my environmentalist friends think I go way too far. I call them marvelous extinctions. That um, when the symphony orchestra in its obese, bloated form of a hundred musicians goes extinct, the whole world will stand up and shout bravo. <laughs> we can resurrect Mahler <laughs> on special occasions. But the optimum size of an orchestra was found in the days of the Baroque of Bach and went into wild runaway after, take it as a measure, 1750, the death of Bach. But you only, you want a performance circle of 20 with 10 voices, if you so, but nothing, nothing more than that. But when that goes extinct, all of a sudden, all those resources which are destroyed by thousands of these outdated, totally worthless Richard Strauss orchestras <laughs> will be freed up for real creative music making. So it's a happy thing. Some things are obsolete and they need to disappear, like the poetry journal. <laughs> it's not only we're sitting here talking to the tree people. It's not only a totally obscene waste of energy and paper, uh, but that all they are are scores. And who's going to read them? Just other poets who are totally in the prison of their own eye-based uh, scores. Just like the music I used to conduct. They're totally in a, in a, in a self-projected illusion, illusory prison in my view. That's a question. So I'm asking you, the dear listener, to question as well. So to music. We've gotten rid of the orchestra. We've gotten rid of the poetry journal. Now let's pick on the New York Times. <laughs> my little uh, field work library, I'm looking at this magnificent iPad, iPod, Nano, first, second generation. And it was so good. Man, I know that the great Steve Jobs is up there listening to us. It was so good they stopped making it. So you can't get them anymore. So I tried to keep mine alive, and it's gone through a decade of hard use. It has a whole library of things I'm working on, including this poem to music passion which has outgrown us. So there's some musical passion which is outgrowing us now. Inner worlds, our innermost being, transcending, driven, it has to get out of us, driven out of us. Holiest of departures. So this is not some commercial rock and roll, rip-rap, whatever holiest of departures. Inner worlds now, the most practiced of distances. That is an absolutely magnificent image. That he stays with music the whole time. So we're practicing this music until we get it right. If you're using the score in music or the text in a poem, you're just still practicing. That's what I tell my students and myself. 
So this learning by heart, that's what the great Robert Bly was suggesting. It's a very powerful thing. It's a very powerful thing. And unfortunately, just like reading in journals, we're going to pick on the New York Times, has been abused. So it becomes mechanical in this utter failure we call education. But this is poetry to live by. So this is a poem you make your own. Holiest of departures, inner worlds, now the most practiced of distances. You got to work hard to get that inner world and to really work with it. As the other side of thin air. And then there's a magnificent coda, a tale, the last sounding out of the poem. And there are stops in the movement. You see, that's why the script, the notation, the print, the journal is so deadly. It's movement, the essence of the meaning is revealed in the movement. Listen to this, pure, immense, no longer habitable. Rein Rishis, nicht mehr bewohnbar. You see that sound in the German. So don't turn it into this academic alliteration. <laughs> All that does is they're like opiates for the mind to think you understand. You don't understand anything until we make the poem our own as an act of love. Rein, riesig, pure, immense, no longer habitable. Well, there aren't a whole lot of musics around still that reach that. I'm not going to use the word standard. And we are going to pick on the New York Times. Pure, immense, no longer habitable. It's a lot like where we're sitting right here. Well... Bach reaches that spiritual, not, what is it, level? No, we don't have the word. The great Charles Ives, the last transcendentalist of North America. I'll meet hundreds of people out here in the essence of North America wilderness this summer. And if I ask them as a quiz question, you know, like for one of those television shows. Who's Charles Ives? That I can guarantee you, I would lay a thousand dollars on your table as we speak. That people, Charles, who? <laughs> and there are a handful of pieces that reach that spiritual, that's the word, spiritual excellence. That's the expression Dr. King used to use for culture, spiritual excellence. 
That's a very good way of saying it. Well, Old Charlie, that's also the same exact time as uh, To Music was composed. He was doing music uh, and working as an insurance salesman, very successful, but he did happen to create at least two masterpieces, or three, Concord Sonata, the piano, and then the great second violin, Sonata, and of course the Fourth Symphony. So spiritual excellence. Okay, let's pick on the New York Times on this little uh, iPod uh, Nano. It's an absolute work of genius. I mean, technically. And this is not going to get in the way of your poetry practice or musical practice, even for a young child, if we learn how to use it appropriately. But there, one of the uh, many things I'll have that in the deep and the sleepless night that I'll listen to the New York Time, Times review of books I'm really not a literary person. Um, I much prefer reading botanical uh, guidebooks than um, novels or things like that. But there's a review of books, and it's excellent, and it sets a standard in English, blah, blah. I shouldn't say that. And uh, a wonderful host, Pamela Paul. And it's very well done and entertaining and all the rest of it. But it's really the, a, a review of success. And when they talk about poetry, I just cringe. <laughs> because I know they're talking about the very thing I want to go extinct, or want that should go extinct, because it's utterly worthless and mechanical, and it's an illusion, it's a prison. If you think that's poetry, then it's, uh, it will create an intellectual elite, academic elite, New York Times elite, <laughs> which is completely disconnected with uh, the world where we're sitting here. Remember, we're always talking about the circle of nature and the circle of culture. Well, that circle of culture is, for especially young people, it's very delusional and can be very deceiving to put that up. That is not, in my view, and I don't mean that as a conclusion, but for the dialogue, that is not spiritual excellence. So what do we do? So uh, so much for the New York Times. Well, we have to actually go to the poem, just like you have to actually come to this little alpine lake with these magnificent four, five, six, eight hundred year old white bark pines that are all suffering because of us. Now that's not illusion. So to find the poem, we have to actually do it. And that's what poetry to live by is all about. It's very simple. So uh, instead, uh, imagine getting a book on yoga. So we're doing our yoga with poetry. It's a, that's why it's called a practice. Inner world's now the most practiced of distances. We're going to get this darn poem right. That's how you translate it, too. You do it over and over and over. It's never going to be perfect, so it's a work in progress to use an ugly expression. Music, 
You stranger, see how intimate that is. Passion, which has outgrown us, our innermost being transcending, driven out of us. That's that spiritual excellence. Holiest of departures. So if you get a book on yoga, and we're just to look at the descriptions and the, the wonderful photographs, and never actually do it, that's analogous to the relationship to poetry if you're just reading it with the eyes. One has to liberate it, just like you do in music. If you're playing your Bach, say a partita, an invention, or whatever, a keyboard player, when you know it by heart and can play it backwards, upside down, different tempi, change the articulation with and without uh, pedal, play it on an organ, play it on a harpsichord, make an arrangement for one of those obsolete hundred-piece orchestras. Well, then you start to understand. So it's the direct experience of the energy, not just the poem, but the energy, that we want as an intention. So you set out to come to this lake, and well, you'll find it sooner or later. Every step is the practice. So throw away the yoga book, and then you're actually doing it. So the beginning of the poem, music, he's asking, right, music. He was just at a concert, so he's jotting this down. We say in the guest book, music. And here comes a wonderful sequence of images. The breathing of statues. The silence of pictures, perhaps. You, he's being very, speaking directly to the essence, the muse. You, language where all language ends. So that's like the book reviews, right? Out, extinct. You, language where all languages end. You, time, standing straight up, standing straight up out of the direction of hearts passing on. Feeling for whom? Oh, the transformation of feeling into what? Into audible landscape. Music. You stranger. Passion, which has outgrown us. Our innermost being transcending, driven out of us. Holiest of departures. Inner worlds now, the most practiced 
of distances as the other side of thin air pure immense no longer habitable okay well that's our poem to live by let me know what you think if you're looking for the text to get yourself started what you can do is uh, go to picture-poems.org or just google to music put Cliff Grigo and then PDF and uh, you'll get the uh, wonderful little picture poem uh, poster for this piece and it features I won't talk about it now we've talked enough a wonderful sketch 16th century Italian sketch of Orpheus is very much like where's where we're sitting here singing under the shade of the pines of Rome we imagine but get that and make a recording of it and then you do it breath by breath the breath is the real measure for both music and poetry it has nothing to do with what you see there on that poster page and then you put it on your uh, make a recording with your phone or whatever and then play it back take it somewhere and then learn it phrase by phrase and then later another time you can i can go into the details of the rhythm how you simplify the rhythm when you really want to learn it with your feet and your whole being that's that technique talking hands talking feet for dancers and musicians and perhaps even the poets among us okay this is cliff signing off for the picture-poems.com website in the circle in the square ciao for now <laughs>